Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 1. It's a privilege to be before you and begin the Lord's Day, the, the year together on the Lord's Day, and to sit under the preaching of God's Word. As I reflected upon a text for this week, I could think of no other text more fitting for the first day of the year than Psalm 1. Psalm, this psalm, of, of course, is the first in the Psalter. You see that by its number at the top. Um, it's the anchor, though. It's, it really establishes the tone for the, the, the psalms that come behind it. It is um, of supreme importance, for in this psalm we see two paths, two directions, two choices, two destinies. And like many of in the Proverbs, we see the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. The message of this text is that there is great reward in faithfully following Christ and being among the congregation of the righteous. The rewards come as we feed upon, as we meditate upon God's word. And we'll consider this text under three headings, the direction of the believer, the description of the believer, and the destiny of the of the believer. I, I have to confess I'm indebted to Dr. Dale Ralph Davis for his outline, and I thought I could do no better than to, to, um, to bring that to you, the direction, the description, and the destiny of the believer. There's much for us to learn, so let us go to the Lord and ask his blessing upon the reading and preaching of his holy word. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. It is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so, Lord, we pray that, that it would go in cutting and come out cutting. That, that you, by your Spirit, would do your work in the hearts of your people. And, Lord, if there's any here that are outside of Christ that do not know you as their Lord and Savior, we pray that your word would, would reach them and call them to you, we pray. Lord, it is a work of your Spirit Lord, that we are brought into fellowship with you. And Lord, it is a work of your spirit that your word reaches us day by day and week by week. So Lord, we pray now that, that the words of my mouth and the, word, the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in thy sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, in all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. Imagine with me that you have a friend, a friend who has inherited a piece of property. And on this piece of property is an abandoned gold mine. 
Now, it's well known that this, was, this mine was a, once a very prosperous gold mine, producing much gold. And you ask your friend who's just inherited this property about this mine, and he confirms, yes, it, it was a prosperous mine in its day. There's still much potential in it. And, and so you naturally ask, well, are you going to get back to work in, in mining the gold that's, that's in it? And, 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 and oddly, your friend is indifferent and says, well, I don't know. I'm really busy now, and, and I'm not sure it'd be a lot of work. I'm just not sure I'm going to get to it. And, and you remind him about the price of gold and the, and the value that, that is there. And he says, well, you know, I, I'm really busy with my, my part-time job right now, and I just don't know that, that, I can, that I can get to that. Now, I begin that this morning with this rather preposterous example of one who fails to realize the wealth that can be had. Because in our passage this morning, the psalmist shows us that meditation upon God's word will bring us many spiritual blessings that result in a heart that is well-nourished upon God's word. A heart whose roots go down deep. But before we consider the blessings, we have to consider the direction of this believer. What does this text tell us about the righteous? Well, it tells us in three ways in, in the negative what the righteous does not do. This is a familiar text. You, you maybe even memorized this text as a child. We, we sing it often. We're going to sing it at the end of our service. But I want us to slow down and think about how this text is laid out. It tells us what the righteous man does not do, but not just what he doesn't do, what he does not think, what he does not do, and who he does not follow. Look with me at verse 1. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand in the way of sinners, and he does not sit in the seat of the scoffer. There's three postures, walking, standing, and sitting. And then there's three locations, counsel, way, and seat. Or, or we should say more accurately, not just locations, but three realms of influence that are dealt with here in that opening verse. The righteous man is called to wisdom. He's called to be wise, to know these circles of influence so he's not brought into them. And, and also to know their own, his own self, to know how he is affected by these circles of influence. First of all, it says that he walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And that speaks to the mind, the area of our thinking. And that's really where it all starts. It's where sin is conceived. It's where sin is contemplated. It's, it's where the supposed rewards of sin are considered in the mind. James in the New Testament speaks about how sin, temptation which leads, to, which, which leads to sin begins with desires which are first formed in the mind. So the righteous believer guards his or her mind. Secondly, the, the psalmist calls us to consider the realm of behavior, what we do, actions and activities. And we see in this first verse a downward progression from accepting the advice and the mental influences of the wicked to embracing and joining their ways. When the Bible speaks of the way of a person or the path a person takes, it's referring to their manner of life. This 
verse reminds us that the righteous guard their actions and practices so that they do not, not join the world in their pursuit of sin. And then thirdly, we see in this first verse that the righteous does not sit in the seat of the scoffer. Now that's language that's rather foreign to us and, and we have to think that it, it is a progression. We go from, from thinking to activity to to identity or to belonging. The, it's, the scoffer is the one who mocks what is good, one who is arrogant and speaks with contempt toward the righteous. The scoffer is among the worst of sinners because they are unrepentant. They are stiff-necked, the Bible would, tell, would call them. And to sit in their seat is to identify with them. It is to become one with them. And this is not to say that we should not have friends that are unbelievers. I trust that you do, and I trust that you cultivate true friendship with those who don't know Christ. That's not to say you can enjoy all of the things that you do with fellow believers, because the Bible calls us a family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet we should cultivate friendship with those outside of the faith. And, but we should maintain our light. We should maintain our influence. Not that, not that there are projects, but we recognize that we have something within us that, that they don't. That they, that they need the light of Christ. That they need the influence of the gospel in their lives. And so we should walk in such a way as not to allow the, the, the muddled fog of the world's thoughts and values to dim the light in Christ in us. But that, that we might be light to those around us. So... You, you notice the progression here from thinking to activity to belonging and to identity with the scornful sinner. And in this, we're reminded that the mind is the battleground. The mind is where it starts. And that's what we must defend. And, and remember, this is a description of the righteous man. And this is a, showing us a contrast. But I think there's a lesson for us here. In, in understanding how we should function in the world. Just as the righteous one in the psalm does, does not do these things, we too are called to avoid the influences of the world in our, in our mind and in our life and in the, in the world in which we live. But how then are we to guard our minds? How then are we to equip ourselves for this fight against sin? What tools are at our disposal for such a work? Well, I'm glad you asked because that brings us to our second point, the description of the believer. We saw the direction of the believer, the direction in which they, things that they avoid. But now we see the description of the believer. If you're taking notes, you'll notice in the, in the insert in your bulletin, there's a little extra space under point two, that's because we want to camp out a little bit here and focus on what it means and how we are equipped to do this work that we're called to do. And, that, and, and this largely comes from verses two and three. And this verse two tells us two things that the believer does. They delight in the law of the Lord and they meditate upon the law of the Lord. It sounds so simple, right? Delighting in and meditating upon the law of the Lord. Now, law means instruction or command. It can refer to a, a single command, but here it refers to the totality of God's commands contained in God's word. 
And so what does the believer do? What is the activity of the believer? It's, first of all, it's really not an activity at all. At all. It's, a, it's, a, it's a mindset. It's an attitude of the heart. It says that he delights in the law of the Lord. Let me ask you a question this morning. What do you delight in? Don't answer me out loud, but think about this in your heart. What do you delight in? Now, Christmas is just a week ago. For some of you young people, and maybe you big people too, maybe it was you delighted in and thought about that one gift that you really wanted more than anything else. And maybe in the days leading up to Christmas, you thought, oh, am I going to get that gift? Am I going to get that gift that I really want more than anything else? And as you open it, you're wondering if it's it, and hopefully you got the gift that you wanted. And maybe the last week has been filled with delight. Your heart has been full of delight in that thing that you wanted. Maybe if you're an adult, you're thinking about that year-end bonus, and you're thinking, mm, I wonder what it's going to be. I wonder if they're going to give me anything this year. I, I think I deserve something. And what will we do with it? Really, what we think about is the object of our delight. Now, I don't mean to say that, that everything you think about is necessarily evil. There's many things that we're called to think about and, and many things that, that, that we, we do contemplate in our mind. But what do you think about when you're not technically thinking about anything? You know, you just sit down and you breathe a deep breath and maybe the, the task you were working on is, is, is over. And what does your mind go to? What is it that you dwell upon? What is it that you desire? That's what I want us to think about. What we desire, what we think about, and maybe what we scheme about is the thing that we meditate on. We meditate on those things in which we delight. And really, that's what this psalm is saying. The, the righteous, the believer, he delights in God's law, so therefore he meditates upon it. It is the object of his meditation because it is the object of his delight. And that's really what it means to meditate upon it. Noah Webster in his 1828 dictionary says, Meditate means to dwell on anything in thought, to contemplate, to study, to turn or revolve any subject in the mind, to turn it over, over in your mind. And, and he goes on. You know, he says it's appropriately but not exclusively used of pious contemplation. Sometimes our, our desires are pious and sometimes they are not so pious. But it is to turn something over in our minds, to dwell upon it. One commentator in, in thinking about uh, this subject of meditation pointed out that it carries the idea of muttering to oneself and and he gave the illustration of, of back in the day before Google Maps and iPhones when, when you'd stop at the gas station to get directions and they'd say, you know, go down the street two miles and, and at the stoplight take a left and go to the gas station, take a right. And, you're, and you walk out of the gas station muttering these things back to yourself because you want to remember them. And he's saying that's kind of what we need to do with God's word. As we meditate upon it, we, we recite it to ourselves. Now, in our Western culture, people think you're crazy if you're talking to yourself in, in most contexts. But there are opportunities that we have to mutter God's word back to ourselves, to, to say it back to ourselves. And the psalmist says that it is to be done day and night. It's kind of hard to do it in the dark 
when you're getting ready to go to sleep if you haven't done it during the day. So it's important to do it day as well as night. Now, how are we to go about doing this idea of meditation? It is God's word, his commands, his law should be our delight. It should be natural that we meditate upon it. How do we do it? And really, that brings me to to really what was the the, the inspiration for this sermon. And looking at Psalm 1 was the book, and, and I know some of you went through it recently in Sunday School, Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life by Don Whitney. And in there... He offers 17 methods of of meditation. Now, as much as I'd like to give you all 17, and as much as I would like to use the word 17thly in a sermon, I'm not going to give them all to you, but I will give you three or four. One, he says, and and you've probably heard this, take a verse and emphasize various words in that verse. An example might be Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? You focus on the word light. What does the word light mean? How, does, how is God light? He is your salvation. You can focus upon that. What it means that, that the salvation of the Lord has reached you. And then how do those concepts equip you and defend you in those moments of fear? You can meditate upon particular words in the text. Another application or another uh, method of meditation that he offers is, is to look for applications in the text. Certainly we should do that as we read God's word. I was reminded of this as I was reading what, what maybe seems like an unlikely location, but 2 Chronicles. In 2 Chronicles, you see the record of kings of Israel and Judah. Many of them were wicked men. And, and you, you shudder to think at some of the activity that they engaged in and sacrificing their sons to Moloch and, and terrible things like that. Some of them, however, began well. And as I read... A number of kings began well, and yet late in their kingdom, their kingship, in their reign, they, they failed. They failed to seek God. They failed to follow God. They, they made unholy alliances with, with enemy kings, and, and, and they didn't trust God. And, and, and I was reminded for myself in the point in my life in which I am that I want to finish strong. I don't want to be like those kings of Israel that made alliances with Egypt or with Syria. But I want to faithfully follow God all through my life. So, so look for applications in the text. If you're artistic, maybe you could make an artistic representation of the verse. That's not me, but I know some of you it probably is. Also, memorization is a very practical way to, to keep God's word in your heart and to meditate upon it. So what does this meditation produce in the believer? The psalmist gives us a picture of that man. We like pictures. They, they help us maintain attention in a book, especially if you're dyslexic like me. But, but the psalmist gives us a picture. He says, here's what the righteous man is like. Look at verse 3. He's like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither in all that he does, he prospers. Okay, so here is the faithful man. Imagine a grove of trees in the desert or in a prairie that doesn't get much rain. But where do you find the trees? Near the water, near the streams. Their roots go down deep to, to draw up that nourishment and, that, and that, that water that they need. And what does it produce? It produces stability, fruitfulness, perseverance, 
and prosperity. All of that is seen in verse 3. The picture there is of a, <clears throat> a tree that's, that's well established, one who is not easily shaken, someone who is well grounded, firm, steadfast. Paul speaks in Ephesians 4 that, that the Ephesians should not be those who are tossed to and fro and by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. And he contrasts those with, with those who are solid in their faith. Those who are well-grounded, those who are steadfast, those who are able to speak the truth in love. We can often feel shaken in our faith. We are often, often too influenced by the world. And the world is an unsettling place. But the psalmist is saying that, that the man or woman or child who meditates on God's word is steadfast. They are stable. They are also fruitful. What are the marks of fruitfulness in a believer? We often think that, that fruitfulness means sharing the gospel. And, and it, it can and should involve that. And, and seeking to bring others to faith. And, and sharing the good news about the risen Savior. But it's more than that. What about the fruit mentioned in Galatians 5? Of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do you see that fruit in yourself? That fruit is cultivated by meditation upon God's word. And we often want to see fruit quickly. We, we are impatient people. We want to see fruit quickly in our lives. But Derek Kidner in his commentary on this psalm says, The phrase, it's fruit in its season there, quoting from verse 3, that emphasizes both the distinctiveness and the quiet growth of the product. You think about a tree, a tree doesn't grow very quickly. And he says, the tree is no mere channel piping the water unchanged from one place to another, but a living organism which absorbs it to produce in due course something new and delightful, proper to its kind and to its time. And that's what spiritual growth looks like. It's slow. And it's, it's, a, it's a long obedience in the same direction as, one, as someone said. It is... It is, it is drawing upon God's word and seeing the fruit of godliness coming out in your life, even if it's slow in being recognized. And that's why we need other people. We need other people to help us recognize the fruit that's in our lives. Sometimes we, we may need people to say, hey, I don't see the fruit maybe that I need to see, or, that you, or, you're, or you're, I see that your faith is wavering in this way. And they can encourage you in that moment and that time. So this meditation also produces perseverance. A parallel passage to this is Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8, which says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. The one who meditates upon God's word perseveres even in the hard times, even in the dry times. And I, I recognize my own failure in this because it is easy to be discouraged. It is easy to look at the world around us and think, this is terrible. We live in a terrible world, and, and in many ways we do, but yet there's many blessings that we enjoy because of God's grace upon it. 
And if we consistently meditate upon God's word, we are reminded who is, who is really in charge. That God is sovereign despite the things that happen around us in the world. And that's one of the reasons I love that hymn with which we opened our worship. God is our help in ages past and our hope for years to come. He is the same. He remains unchanged. And he is the one who is sovereign over all the affairs of man. Meditating on God's word keeps us going even in the troubled times. So there is stability, there is fruitfulness, there is perseverance, and finally there is prosperity. Verse 3 says, the man will prosper in his ways, and all he does, he prospers. Now we dare not think of that as just in terms of material prosperity, because we know that, that, that suffering is part of the Christian life. But you can be suffering prosperously. You can suffer prosperously. Because it is God's work in you when you suffer. And prosperity is, is a much, that, that the psalmist is talking about is, is much bigger than just your bank account. It's much bigger than just what you have. It's, it's who you are and what God is doing. It's, it's things of eternal value. It's, it's not the fleeting prosperity of riches of this world that fade away, but it's the true riches that can be laid up in heaven before us. True prosperity comes from meditation upon God's word. So after providing this description of the righteous being like a tree, the psalmist shows us two destinies, and we see the destiny of the believer. And we see that in contrast with the wicked, and, and really more, more words are spent upon the, the wicked, but I want us to focus upon the righteous and how, how the righteous stand out as the wicked are described. I, I love the way the psalms teach us about the wicked. Because the world in which we live shows the wicked with, with a lot of gloss and glamour. They're, they're, the, they're the most beautiful, they're the richest, they're the, the smartest, they're the most successful. But you know what? The, the world of the Psalms was the same thing. The, the psalmist looks at the wicked and says, look at them. They're fat, they're sleek, everything's going good, they get all the breaks. But we are reminded of... Of, of the truth of God's word. And we see the end of the wicked here in this psalm, as well as in other places in the psalms. Scripture sets things straight. And, and what it says, first of all, is that they are not so. Well, that's a simple phrase, and it, it, it's a little odd. It's maybe peculiar to us. But remember the picture that's just been painted? about the righteous and how they persevere and how they're stable and how they're fruitful. The wicked are not so. The wicked are not like that. The wicked are not so, but they are like the chaff. The chaff which the wind drives away. Now, I'm, I'm, I, I, I consider myself a country boy at heart. I, I know a little about farm life. Um, I didn't experience it all firsthand, but I did get to go to my grandparents in the summer when I was a teenager. And my grandpa would go and check and see if the wheat was ripe. And he would, he would pull a head off the, the wheat and he would grind it in his hand and he would blow the chaff away. And I would see the wispy husk 
just blow away in the wind as if they were nothing. And what was left was the kernel of wheat in, in his hand. And the wicked are like that. They're the chaff, the, the things that are nearly weightless, the things that are useless. That's what the wicked are. That's what the scripture is telling us, that the, they're like the chaff which the wind drives away. But the righteous, they will receive their eternal reward. And, and we know that reward is heaven, that, that, that reward is being with Christ forever. And, and, and this scripture doesn't really tell us all of those things, this passage right here. But what does it say? It says, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Now, to know is much more than just to be informed. To know means to, to understand. It, it, it has the idea of ownership, of identity with. And the righteous is known of God because God, first of all, has infinite knowledge of them. But he has identified with his own in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We can be known of God certainly because of his infinite knowledge and we can rest in that, but we also can, can be comforted to know that Christ who took on flesh lived among us. We are known of God because Christ endured temptation and the cross and emerged victorious over sin and death and the grave. We are known of God because God drew near to us. In the person of Jesus Christ. What a comfort that should be to our souls. As we, as we think about what it means to be known of God. So as we conclude this morning. I, I want to remind you what it means to have a well nourished heart. That's really what we're talking about here. A heart that's well nourished upon God's word. To, to be well nourished means to have been provided with plenty of the material that is necessary for life. And growth. And we have. We have in God's word been provided with plenty of the material that is necessary for life and growth. The, the well-nourished heart is the one that feeds upon, that meditates upon God's word. It's the one who is content in God, not restless. The well-nourished heart is the one who is eager for more nourishment. From God's word. And so I encourage you as, as you look upon 2023. Think about how can I feed upon God's word in this coming year. How can I read it? How can I meditate upon it? How can I make it more my delight? Feeding upon God's word results in a well nourished heart. But you might say. What if I don't desire God's word? And I know sometimes in the Christian life, you don't desire the things of God as you should. You might think, I know I should delight more in God's word, but it's hard. There's a lot of things in my life. But maybe, I want to say this kindly, maybe there's other things in which you delight more. Maybe there's things that you love more than Christ that occupy the delights, the affection, the desires, the joy of your heart. Those are called idols. The problem with idolatry is that it doesn't look like idolatry. It doesn't feel like idolatry. It just feels like something we like and we want. And often it's because we fear losing that thing. 
We have set our affections on it, and we think we would be less of a person if we lost that thing. Or we would be a more complete person if we had that thing. Often, idolatry looks like fear. Fear of not having something that we need. And really, that's the lie that, that, that Satan came at Eve with. At, at, at chipping away at what God had said. Hath God really said? And then the next lie, and the, and the ultimate lie, is that God does not, is not going to give you the things that you need. So idolatry often is holding on to something we need and not trusting God for the things that we truly need. As believers, we're called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. So ask God to give you that love. Ask him to strip away the idols, as scary as that can be. Ask him to strip away the idols. Ask him to set your affection on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Look to Christ. Delight in him. He is the one who has paid the penalty for your sins if you are in Christ. And if, if you are not in Christ, I invite you to come to Christ. To find him the fulfillment of all of your heart's needs. Repent of your sins and trust in him fully today. It is only as we abide in Christ, as we delight in Him, as we find our fulfillment in Him that we can delight in God's Word. But let me say this. He's given us one another. As I said earlier, we're a family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're connected. We're a body. And, and to be connected to the head, Christ, who is the head of the body, we need to be connected to the body, to one another. We need each other. So reach out to a brother or sister in your time of need. We're here for you. You need the body and we need you. We are all needy people. And we are all helping people. Did you hear me? We're all needy people and we're all helping people. So God calls us to help one another. And he calls us too to lean upon one another. So be that brother or sister to someone else. So let me ask you as I close, what are your excuses? What are your flimsy excuses for not mining the gold of, my, of God's word? Now I say that kind of harshly and somewhat, somewhat good-naturedly because I, I have moments in which I struggle as well. But when you think about the riches of God's word, it's almost as ridiculous as a man who sits on a gold mine and says he's too busy doing other things to mine the riches that are there. So will you take the time in this year to mine the riches of God's word? If you don't, you'll face spiritual poverty. But if you do, if you dig in, there's great riches to be yours. Let us pray.